but I'm proud of it. I have a little brother and saw him, witness him grow up to be the man that he is. And I want to tell you that uh, I believe that he is a man of God. He's a man with a mission. He's a man with a vision. And I pray that the Lord will continue to use him. Uh, he, presently, he is working at the Alberta Conference. And with that, the media team there. Um, he is born in Quebec, Canada. And uh, he has been used to establish different uh, ministries and, and so forth. Um, but beyond all of that, I see that his eyes, his eyes is truly on the sparrow. And it is a joy to have him uh, share this pulpit today. Um, I want you to know that there is a calling upon everyone's life. And as you hear him speak, um, you'll understand why I say that. Last night he gave us his testimony, and uh, today uh, he will be sharing with us the big picture. And as you hear him speak, just simply breathe a word of prayer for him as he leads that it will not be him seen, but that it will be God, and that the Lord will speak to us, and that we will leave here convicted. Amen? After um, our choir sings, the Abundant Life Choir, the next voice that you will hear is that of Normico Madden. Shelter in the time of storm. I would not be a backslider. 
Happy Sabbath, Abundant Life. God is good? All the time? Amen. Amen. It, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And I was really glad when my brother invited me to come to Abundant Life to share God's message with you. And um, really, really glad to be here. And I was strongly encouraged before I preached the sermon to, uh, to share a song with you. So uh, the angel of this house strongly encouraged me. Uh, big brother, he pulled rank on me, and he said, you got to do a song. So I said, okay, um, I'll do a song. So we're just going to share a song that goes with the theme of the sermon before we start. Okay. Test. Okay.
The timeless theme, earth and heaven will pass away. It's not a dream. God will make all things new that day. Gone is the curse from which I stumbled and fell. And evil is banished no longer to dwell. No more night, no more pain, no more tears, never crying again. And praises to the great I am. We will live in the light of the risen See all around, all the nations bow down to sing. The only sound is the praises to Christ, our King. Slowly the name from the books are read. But you know the king, so there's no need, no need to dread. No more nights, no more pain, no more tears, never crying again and praise as to the great I am we will live in the light of the risen Lamb see over there there's a mansion oh that's prepared just for me where I will live with my Savior eternally there's gonna be no more night no no there's gonna be no more pain no tears never crying again and praises to the great I am we will live in the light of the risen 
Praise God, everyone. Praise God. Is this one on? Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Really excited to share a message with you this morning um, that God has put on my heart. And um, I want to say that uh, as much as I love preaching, I like teaching a little bit more. Amen. Because it's one thing to come to church and to, you know, hoot and holler and have a good time. But it's another thing when the blessing sets you up for an amazing week. Amen? Amen. And that's what I believe uh, God wants our experience to be on Sabbath. God wants the Sabbath to be a launching pad for the rest of the week. And so um, I tend to always ask myself the question, you know, what will this message do for them on Tuesday? You know? And uh, this message really, uh, as, I, as I came to some conclusions from what we're going to study this morning, um, my heart was just overwhelmed with joy seeing the goodness of God, brothers and sisters. Isn't God good? Yes, yes he is. Yes, he is. Um, before I jump into the message, though, since I'm speaking to the youth, I know everybody's really technically savvy. And uh, I saw the, the sign up there. It said, please turn off your cell phones. Very tactful, you know, you don't have somebody going around poking everybody, telling them to turn off the cell phones. But, uh, amen. Okay, good. So, so, so I was thinking, and I, and I saw this thing on the internet, which I kind of modified, and the idea was, what if we used our Bibles the way we use our cell phones? What if we use our Bibles the way we use our cell phones, specifically speaking? What if we carried it around everywhere that we went? What if we heard the voice speaking through it? What if we flipped through it several times a day? What if we used it to send text messages? What if we used it to make us only walk in places where we'd have good reception? What if we let it surprise us during the sermon? What if we used it to know the times? What if we subscribed to its plans? But the one thing I like about the Bible, unlike a cell phone, is that it won't get disconnected because Jesus has already paid the bill. Amen? Amen, brothers and sisters. That really blessed me, uh, reading that and, and writing that, actually. Um, and so as we, as we begin the sermon this morning, uh, my sermon is really for the youth. 
and uh, the parents can eavesdrop, you know, but at the same time, we're all young in God's eyes. Amen? Amen. Amen. God has no grandchildren. Um, one more thing, clicker. Clicker so that it can uh, be on the screen. Well, as, as he brings the clicker up, I'll just share a little story with you before we get into our message. Um, when I was a young man in high school, uh, you get curious about doing a lot of things. Thanks so much. Thank you. And um, does anybody know what you're looking at on screen? Fire alarm, close. Okay, you guys have subway in, in, in uh, Las Vegas? No, you don't have a subway. Oh, okay, so then that wouldn't be familiar. But this is a picture of the emergency lever in the subway in Montreal, where I'm originally from. And one of the interesting things that happened when I was a young man was that uh, there was a field trip. And I wasn't there on this field trip day. But one of my friends, he was going on the field trip. And they were all in the subway. And there's a bunch of students. And you know how it is when you're a teacher and you have a whole bunch of students. And they're just kind of you know, going through the, um, the subway. And they're trying to manage everybody. And somehow, some way, as the students were being loaded onto the metro, what happened was all the students had big backpacks. And so as one student got off the metro, the last student got off, and then the doors closed on his bag. And so he's outside of the metro with his bag caught in the door, and then the metro starts to roll like this. And as he's being rolled, he's looking to the right and to the left, excuse me, and he's seeing the wall coming up right where the, it's going to go into the tunnel. So immediately, one of the other students, you know, uh, or an adult, jumped and grabbed the emergency lever and pulled it down. And just a few feet before, it saved his life. And blew my mind. And everybody was telling me this story. And they were all excited about how you know, this young man's life was saved. And I was like, wow, God is amazing, you know? But I began to wonder for myself. I said, hmm, that would be just such an interesting to pull myself, you know? Has anybody ever felt the urge to do something a bit mischievous? Because you just see it there, and you're just like, you know, it's the red button, right? The one red button you just want to push or pull or whatever it is, right? And so I was just wondering, I was like, what would happen if I pushed that? And I saw a big sign that says, if you push it for a bad reason, it's a $500 fine, right? But I said, that's not good enough. So I actually went to a bus driver, and I said, what would happen if I pulled the emergency lever on the metro? And first thing he looked at me and said, why? And I said, I'm just asking because I just want to know. And I wasn't really thinking about doing it. But he said something interesting. He says, what most people don't recognize is that when you pull that emergency lever, the train stops. But not only does that train stop, all the other trains in that same line stop as well. But not only do all the other trains in that line stop as well because they can't advance to the next station, but they have to send out a dispatch team to go see what the problem is. From the, head, from the head office. And so they see everything on a big map and everything shuts down. But not only does everything shut down, all the people that are on those buses or those metros, their schedule gets shut down. So the person who's going in for his first time interview, he's going to be late. The young man going in for his, his, his exam, final exam, he's going to be late. That physician who's going downtown for his emergency surgery, he's going to be late as well. And as he put this into my mind and as he painted this picture, I started to be completely blown away by the fact 
that such a small thing in my mind had such big implications. As a young man, I didn't recognize that although I was seeing the small picture, there was a big picture, a much bigger picture of implications that were going on behind the scenes. And my consequences, excuse me, my actions had much greater consequences than I even could realize. And so, brothers and sisters, the message I want to bring to you this morning is entitled, The Big Picture. And so I'm going to say a little prayer, and we're going to jump right into the message. Please pray with and for me as I do. Gracious Lord and our loving Father, we thank you so much for the gift of life, Lord, and not only the gift of life, but the gift of life in Jesus Christ, Lord. We praise you this morning for you are a mighty God, and we know you have a word for your people. So I pray in a special way that you'll just clear our minds, allow us to connect with you, dear God. We need to hear from you, Father. We need the word of life. Just like our bodies need food and water and shelter, our souls need to hear from you this morning, dear God. So we're asking in a special way for spiritual nourishment, dear God, that we can't get anywhere else but from you. Be with us, dear God, as you promised, because we believe you as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the three areas that I want to look at when we talk about the big picture is the big picture of life, the big picture of long-suffering, and the big picture of love. Did you get that? The big picture of life, the big picture of long-suffering, and the big picture of love. So to get started, I wanted to share a little video with you. I'm a media guy, so I like to use videos to make illustrations and to to teach from. Um, And the video that I like to play for you is a really interesting experiment that took place about 40 years, 50 years ago. Um, But they redid that experiment recently, and and I think you'll find it interesting. But before I play that video, actually, I want to put something on the screen for the young people as well. I don't know if you can figure out what that is. Some of you might know what it is. Okay, okay, if you know what it is, then don't, don't, don't say. But if, if you're a young person under 18 and you can figure out what that is, I'm going to give you a free CD, all right, by the end of the sermon, okay? You're under 18, and you have to f- tell me what that is, okay? So if you can't figure it out, you'll see it again, but I'm just going to let you know now that it's going to come back, and you have to figure out what it is, okay? So the big picture of life is what we're starting with. In Luke... Chapter 16, verses 10 to 12, Jesus says something interesting. Luke, chapter 16, verses 10 to 12. Very simple text, which we cite all the time. But I don't think we completely swallow all of the implications, especially as young people. It says in Luke chapter 16, verses 10 to 12, Jesus is speaking, and he says, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is also unjust in much. If ye therefore have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? Now, this is really deep because Jesus is basically saying your own soul, right? Think about it. If you're not reaching out for other souls and caring about other souls, why would you be good with your own soul, right? But 
the simple picture that Jesus is trying to paint, he's saying that whatever you do in the small sense, recognize that your small actions have big implications. Your small actions that you think maybe are, are very, very transitory and just not, not weighted with meaning, they have massive implications. And, and as I said, this is something that I think young people don't recognize. And I wanted to show you an experiment that brings this out in an amazing way. It's called the marshmallow test. So they're going to put that up on screen. But basically, 50 years ago, they ran this test and they did a modern version of it. It's good. OK, so here's the deal. There's a marshmallow. You can either wait, and I'll bring you back another one. So you can have two, or you can eat it now. So you can eat it now, or you can wait, and I'll bring you back two. OK? Okay, I'll be back. Okay, so I have one marshmallow for each of you. Okay, so one. Don't eat it. And here's the deal. You can either eat it now, or you can wait till I get back, and you can have two. Okay? Okay. So eat it now, or wait till I get back, and you can have two. And I'll be back in a little bit. If we wait, we, we'll, we'll, you'll get us two? Yep, if you wait, you'll get two. Or you can eat it now, whichever you want. Okay? I'll be back in a little bit. I'm gonna wait. Still ate some of it, so she still 
Now, what is really amazing about that video, brothers and sisters, is as you watch that video, you know, we think it's just a cute little experiment for kids. But what Stanford University did was they followed those same kids. They took a 1,000 of them in 1960 and followed them until they were 32 years old. And they found out that the kids that were not able to wait until they were, for the 15 minutes, were more prone to obesity, more prone to drug use, more prone to risky behaviors, more prone to bad behavior, and they had a 210-point SAT score that was lower. Every sing almost in every single case, the kids that could actually wait the 15 minutes, they always did better. Their parents saw them doing better, and every, in every single case, essentially, it was always shown that the kids that could wait, that, could have, that had self-control, the ability to tell themselves no, they always did better. Isn't that, isn't that amazing, brothers and sisters? And this is one of the bigger things that, that God is, I think, trying to help us to understand. Even in little things, the more you see the big picture, the better it will be for you in your life and in your eternal life. Amen? And so this is one of the things that that, uh, that, that experience uh, taught me. But, you know, you, you don't just see it with little kids. Uh, recently, there's been in the news the story about these two gentlemen, or that specific one over there, Allen Iverson and Kobe Bryant. And what's interesting about them is that they're, they're similar in terms of numbers, but what they did with those numbers is totally different. Because one lost $200 million, and the other is worth $200 million. But they both had $200 million in their pockets at one point, right? And so as I saw this, I recognized, again, this is just the bigger picture. Kobe had the ability to, to, to invest correctly, to plan ahead for his future, whereas uh, Allen Iverson has to wait now until he's 50 or something like that to get some money that he has put away, right? And so you can see this in life. I'm sure you know people or, or, or have experienced friends or, or maybe in your own life a time where you didn't plan ahead and see the big picture, and it slowed you down in the present, right? And so this is something that God wants us to, to be aware of. But what's interesting is that it's a test of appetite, the marshmallow test, right? And what does that remind us of? That reminds us of Eden, amen? The first marshmallow test, so to speak, was in the Garden of Eden. And what was amazing, brothers and sisters, is that Adam and Eve didn't recognize that God had more planned for them than just staying in the garden. Look at this statement with me. It says there, God created man for his own glory, that after test and trial, the human family might become one with the heavenly family. It was God's purpose to repopulate heaven with the human family. Did you catch that, brothers and sisters? It's saying there that after test and trial, Adam and Eve weren't supposed to perpetually have that tree there. They were just supposed to wait their metaphorical 15 minutes. And if they resisted for a certain amount of time, if they saw the big picture, they would have waited and God would have taken them out of the garden and put them in heaven to replace the angels. Isn't that amazing, brothers and sisters? But what it says, it says after that, which is, is still good, it says, the vacancies made in heaven by the fall of Satan and his angels will be filled by the redeemed of the Lord. So we're still going to get it, amen? We still have the opportunity to, ha to have it. But it just really, really struck me, the understanding that the more we see the big picture, the more it sets us up for success in this life and in the next. And when you're a young person, that's the last thing you want to hear. 
When you're a young person, you just, it tastes good, it feels good, I want to do it right now, right? And so what I want to share with you is how to look at the big picture consistently in life. Because, especially because, the decisions that we make in our spiritual lives mean much more than we know. God brings us into certain situations so that we can start thinking in the big picture. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 to 13, I want to read you an interesting story there. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 to 13. It is the story of Elisha and his servant. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 to 13, and it says, And when the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not at such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him of, and saved himself there not once nor twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. And he called his servants and said unto them, Will ye not show me which one of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. Now this is where it gets really interesting, brothers and sisters. What happens is the king of Syria keeps trying to ambush the king of Israel. He keeps setting up his soldiers and getting ready for them, but every single time he sets up his soldiers, the king of Israel would know that he was there and would avoid him entirely. And so he thinks that somebody in his room, in his team, in his army, is telling them ahead of time that they're being attacked, that they're, um, they're going to ambush them, right? But what he just finds out there is that everything he says in his bedchamber is being shared through the prophet of God. Now, look at what he does next. And this, this just lets you see that the king was not thinking in the big picture. It says, And he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, Behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent thither horses and chariots and a great host that came by night and compassed the city about. Did you catch that, brothers and sisters? He said to him that everything that's happening to you, everything that's going on in your bedchamber, he can hear it. And so he's, oh, he, he can hear everything I, I say. Okay, so send some men to go and get him now. Are you catching that? <laughs> what he just said would have been heard. Amen? So the king is not thinking in the big picture. Amen? And so this is one of the things that God wanted to show him. He wanted to show him something else. So, so, so as we continue down in the text, and that's a non-believer, God wanted to show somebody else the bigger picture, another young person. And it says in verse 15, And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he answered, Fear not, for there be more with us than be with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened his eyes, opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. 
Now, this is amazing, brothers and sisters, because what happened to the young man is that he thought he was in the visible minority. He thought he was a visible minority, essentially. But God had to open his eyes and bring him to a situation that scared him a little bit so that he can see he was in the invisible majority. Amen? If you're in an in, uh, a visible minority, you don't need to worry about it because if you're connected to the invisible majority, then there's no worries, brothers and sisters. And so this is what he goes through himself. And he recognizes through the, the, the opening of God's eyes and, and, and uh, the prayer of Elisha that God is with him and that when God is with you, you are the majority. You're not solo when you're with God. Amen? And that's something that as a young person you need to recognize. Peer pressure is not something that should work on us because we have the greatest friend. We're always in the greater number as a Christian, brothers and sisters. You know what's really interesting is that peer pressure is such a mental thing. Peer pressure does not work until you make your detractors your peers. Did you catch that? You have to first say that, hey, you're on my level in order for peer pressure to actually work. Do you understand? You have to elevate the person, but if they're showing that they're, they're living a sinful life and they don't care about morals and principle, in essence, as a Christian, you should say that person's not on my level. Amen? As a child of God. And you shouldn't let their, peer, their, their pressure work on you. So this is something that God wants us to recognize because we live in a situation where it is just so easy to follow the majority. It is so easy to follow what everybody's doing in the world and, and just to, to, to go with the flow. And, and Jesus addresses this in an interesting way in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Now, you've heard this text before, but I believe this text is more than just a text. I believe it's actually a principle when you think about it. It says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now this is really significant, brothers and sisters, because this is not just talking about salvation in my mind. In a lot of areas, usually you can assume that the majority is wrong. Has anyone ever heard of a herd mentality? Do you, do you know how, do you know how um, um, uh, buffalo usually start herding and running? Usually it's one of them hears something or sees something, and then he just starts running. Right? And the others don't wait to look to see what it is that he's seen. They just see him running, and then they start running, and then everybody just starts running, and then all of a sudden things are getting trampled, right? And you, you, you think it's funny because it's herd mentality, but there's actually studies that show that humans do this all the time. In another experiment, I didn't put the video there, it was really amazing to me because they, they, what they did was they put three people in a room and they sat them down side by side and they gave them uh, an application for a job. And as the people are filling out the application for the job, what they did was they start letting smoke come in from under the door. And so smoke starts coming in from under the door, and what they didn't recognize is that two of the people in the room were planted there, and one person was the real person that they were testing, right? So what they did was they made the two people that were sitting there ignore the smoke on purpose. So the two people were sitting there ignoring the smoke, and the real person was looking at the smoke and looking at the other people, seeing what they're going to do. 
And then because the other two were sitting there, they just continued to like fill out the form while the smokers come in and they didn't run, right? Because they saw what? The others doing it too. Herd mentality, brothers and sisters. And that's not what God wants us to experience, amen? Especially because I love science, is that all right? I love studying nature. Especially because I just found out that you know that text that says the devil is going about like a roaring lion? Have you ever seen a roaring lion catch prey? It's really interesting because, right, they usually quiet and they hunt. But watch this. A lion, as a carnivore, its eyes are different from a herbivore. The way that an, a lion's eyes work is that it's entirely tuned to movement. So in the back of the lion's eye, it's got this, this, this basically like a horizontal type vision. And the only thing that it can see is when something moves. It doesn't really see color. It doesn't see a lot of the other things. So what a lion does is quite often they'll roar to scare the creatures so that they start moving and then they'll go hunt them after they start moving. And that the Bible says the devil has come down like that. And this is the thing, brothers and sisters. We're not supposed to move. We're supposed to stay abiding in Christ. When the lion roars, you're supposed to stand still and let God show his salvation. God wants us to understand that he's not going to leave us alone, and so the lion can't touch us. If we stay still, he cannot see us. All he sees is Jesus. Amen? So when you're tempted, you need to recognize that God has asked you, just stand still, my son. Just stand still, my daughter, and watch what I'm going to do to get you out of this situation. Nature itself teaches this lesson, brothers and sisters, and it's an amazing thing. But one of the things that I hear quite often about being a child of God, as we were saying, is that it's kind of hard to be a child of God because, you know, we're so peculiar and so strange and stuff like that, you know? And, and you know, we're different than the majority. And, 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 and as I was saying, Matthew 7.13 says the majority of people out there are usually going to do, well, the majority of people in their spiritual lives are not going to choose life. They're going to choose the wrong choice. But that applies to many other things as well, brothers and sisters. Think about it. At the flood, did the majority choose right or did the majority choose wrong? At Sodom, did the majority choose right or did the majority choose wrong? In the wilderness in Israel, did the majority choose right or did the majority choose wrong? In the Jews at the time of Jesus, the majority chose right or the majority chose wrong? In the dark ages, believing about the world, whether it was flat or round, what did the majority believe? Wrongly, right? And I'm making a point. What does the majority of the world believe about the Sabbath today? Exactly. So what I'm trying to say, brothers and sisters, is if you see the trend of the majority of people, usually the safe thing to do is if everybody's going that way, you walk this way. I'm telling you, that's the way I live my life, brothers and sisters. If you see the majority going one direction, know that it's probably not the same. It's just like, you know what? Everybody's getting an iPhone. I'm like, no, nah, I'm not getting an iPhone. I'm just going <laughs> to. But whatever the case may be, in all seriousness, seriously, you have to watch the trends of society. And sometimes it's good to hold back and even go the opposite direction, brothers and sisters, especially as young people, because the trends that are going on today are unlike any other trend. And it's really amazing to me because there's this, the psychology, the, the way that it works is really interesting. When you look at people like this, does anybody know who that is? 
That's Lady Gaga, right? And she's dressed with a whole bunch of Kermit the Frogs on her body, okay? And, and yeah, like a Christmas tree, my brother says, right? But now what's really interesting is that people look at me and they say, oh, she's so original, right? She's got such unique style. I'm telling you, people, I've heard people say this, right? And not only her, I'm just using her as an example. She's so different from the norm, right? Have you heard that? So then, I hear that God asks us to have a unique type of dress. I hear that God asks us to have a unique type of diet that will make us live longer, healthier, and stronger. I hear that God has a unique type of message that he gives to a certain type of group of people, which he basically esteems as our VIP, as a VIP of this earth. And we have a problem with that? Amen, brothers and sisters? Do you see that? It's not working because anytime you go to a club or you stand outside of a club, because we're all saints, we don't go to clubs, amen? Amen. I've been to a club back in the days. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest, and that's not a place for God's children. Amen? That needs to be said. I can explain to you why in another sermon. But when you pass by a club, usually there's a line outside, and there's people that want to get into what's called VIP. Very important person, right? And everybody wants to get into that spot. Everybody wants to be VIP. You're watching that, that, you know, the, the, the bouncer and trying to get on the list or whatever it is, trying to be that VIP. But not everybody can be VIP, brothers and sisters. But when you're God's VIP, you can invite people to be a very important person. Amen? And the thing is, is that God is calling us as Seventh-day Adventists, as Christians in this world, to be VIP. Just as people in the world want to go to that club and be in that VIP room, God is saying, I've put you in VIP, so enjoy it. You're going to have a first-class ticket to heaven. Eternal life, eternal joy, eternal peace. And that's what he set up for us, brothers and sisters. So we don't need to look at the world and say, how do we be different and original like them? God has already made you original and different. With the uniqueness of the message that he's given to you, he said, I've made you my peculiar people. Not strange, peculiar. That has a ring to it. You just, there's something special and different and unique about these people. And that's what God wants us to be, brothers and sisters. But... Don't be surprised if people think you're crazy because they thought Jesus was crazy as well. And I want to prove that to you. Mark chapter 3, verses 13, just as Jesus started his ministry, you see something interesting there. I was blown away when I saw this text. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 13. And I didn't even know that Jesus had friends per se. I assumed that Jesus had friends, but this is one of the first texts where you actually see it written. And verse 13, it says, And he goeth up into a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came unto him, and he ordained twelve that they should be with him, that they might send him forth to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out devils. And Simon, he surnamed Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, he surnamed Boadrenes, which is the sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Thaddeus the, and Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, which also betrayed him. And they went into a house, and the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. And when his friends heard of it, they went out and laid hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. Did you cast that, brothers and sisters? Jesus is just starting off his ministry. 
he's just starting, he started to name disciples. He's like, okay, this is how we're going to do it. You guys are going to be my disciples. He starts naming them. And then people start following him. And his friend's like, hey, Jesus, you're crazy with this ministry stuff. Right? They're calling him crazy. And I'm saying this now to tell you that when you start to genuinely follow God, your friends will call you crazy, brothers and sisters. Do not be surprised. Sometimes your own family will call you crazy. I thought Anil was crazy when he was here. <laughs> because he used to, I mean, it was back in the days when, when soy milk tastes like liquid cardboard, you know? And he would be drinking that stuff. He was doing it more for track and field. And, and, but we were just like, this guy is on another planet, you know? Everybody will call you crazy because what happens is other people are getting convicted by the ministry that you're doing. They're recognizing that they should be involved in the same things themselves, brothers and sisters. So when people call you crazy for doing ministry, just say, hey, they call Jesus crazy as well. Amen? And you have the textual evidence to prove it, so don't feel bad. But even if you are called crazy, by God's grace, you can press forward. And one of the reasons you have incentive to press forward is not just for spiritual success, brothers and sisters. It's for temporal success. One of the most amazing stories I've been told was the story of Peter Wessels. Has anybody ever heard of Peter Wessels? No? Okay. Peter Wessels was a man who lived in the 1800s, and he was one of the persons that helped start off this, the Adventist church, but he wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist when he started off. His parents owned quite a bit of land in South Africa, and he was a Dutch Reformed person, and he got pneumonia in those days. And in those days, when you got pneumonia, basically it was a death sentence, right? So he was laid out, and he was just basically expecting to die. And he would read his Bible here and there, and then he said, Listen, God, I'm going to make a deal with you. If you make me survive this pneumonia, I will live for you 100% so that there will be no doubt on this planet that I live for God. Everybody will know about my faith and my walk with you. And he said that before he went to bed one night. And the next morning, brothers and sisters, he woke up, and he was completely healed. Extremely excited. He got up, his legs running, usually are sore in the legs. After pneumonia, he was completely healed. And he said, praise God, praise God. He was celebrating. Everybody recognized that it was a miracle. And so Peter Wessel started to read his Bible. And as he was reading his Bible, he came to the Sabbath. And as he was coming to the Sabbath, he's like, how come we don't do this? So he goes to his Dutch Reformed minister and he says, hey, how come we're not, we're not keeping the Sabbath? And he said, listen, buddy, I'm just paid to do my job, basically. And he's like, what? You're not, you're not serious. This is, this is the word of God. And he's like, listen, just keep it quiet. And if you want to be that serious about it, do it yourself because nobody else is doing it. And he's like, fine, I'm going to do it. I'm going to keep the Sabbath by myself. And so he starts keeping the Sabbath by himself, even when there's a big diamond bust, boom, excuse me, in South Africa. And so he's in the tents on Sabbath morning, and usually everybody goes out to pick every single day to find diamonds, but Peter Wessel stays back in his tent to read his Bible on Sabbath. And one Sabbath, as he sat back and he was reading through his Bible, he saw that the tent was kind of blowing open, and he thought he saw some other legs in another tent across the way, so he's like, and he was sure, yes, there's another set of legs in the tent, and he's wondering what is going to hold back somebody from, you know, digging on Sabbath the diamonds that they can find. So he goes outside, and he sees another man inside his tent just sitting down, and he's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, uh, I, I keep the Sabbath. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. He's like, who? And he's like, yeah, we're a worldwide body of believers that keep the Sabbath. He's like, what, brother? And he hugs him, 
And they get excited, and he becomes a Seventh-day Adventist. And at that time, he starts to become wealthy as well, extremely wealthy, to the point that one, uh, somebody gave him a portion of land where they said, listen, as, as long as your horse can run in a circle, in a square, we'll give you all of that land. And he just started amassing this huge amount of wealth, huge amount of wealth, huge amount of wealth. And he connected with Ellen White in America. And the relationship was going really well, and so he started to help the work, and he built up sanitariums and hotels and all these different businesses that he had in South Africa. But one day, Ellen White wrote to him, and she says, listen, you're going to be asked to let your rich friends have a cigar party at your sanitarium. When they ask you, tell them no, and tell them no firmly. So he got this letter from America, and he's like, this is strange. She's predicting the future. This is absolutely strange. So he just kind of cast it aside. And then about a month later, his friend said, hey, listen, Wessels, you have this beautiful property. There was a property that he had called Beaufontaine. It had a fountain on it, and it was on a hill with a, a hotel, just beautiful land. And they said, listen, we just want to have a cigar party. We're just going to play a little cards. We'll be away from the... Um, you know, the, the, the health guests there so they won't get sick and stuff like that. And he was like, wow, it's actually being fulfilled. And he said, you know what? No, I don't, I don't want to do it. I, I, I don't want to have this, this, this party. And they're like, oh, come on, Wes. You know us. We're not going to have any trouble. It's, it's going to be all good, and everything will be fine. And he's like, no, 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 I can't do this. And so he gets another letter from Ellen White. And she writes and says, they're going to keep asking you, whatever you do, do not send them the allowance to go on your property. And she sent him another letter. She sent him five warnings. And he kept reading these, and they kept asking. And he said, who is this woman from America teaching me what to do with my own money? And so he took the letters, and he tossed them aside. And after that, Ellen White wrote to him 63 times in total. But he just tossed the letters. He told his butler, he said, put those letters aside. I won't be reading them. As soon as he made that decision, there was a shift. Because about two weeks later, he sold a piece of land that he had after he stopped listening to the councils that were coming to him. And two weeks after that, they found that that land is what was called the Kimberly Diamond Mine, the consolidated mines at Kimberly. And brothers and sisters, would you not know it, that that diamond mine is the richest diamond mine in the entire world. The money that they have calculated that they brought out from that diamond mine was $18.5 billion. Could you imagine $18.5 billion in the church today, brothers and sisters? Offering wouldn't be you giving offering. It would be the church giving offering back to you to say, go do God's work. You understand what I'm saying? $18.5 billion in that money back then. It was the richest diamond mine in the world. And a Seventh-day Adventist sold it when he wasn't listening to the council, but that wasn't it. Because shortly after he found out that he lost that, that, that landmine, that, that uh, mine of diamonds, his brother ran up to him and said, listen, Wes, I have some bad news. The hotel burned down. And he says, what? Is everybody okay? He's like, yes, everybody survived, but the hotel is a complete loss. And he's like, okay, okay, just, um, just run the insurance so that they pay for it. And he's like, that's the trouble, Wes. We were going through rough times, so I didn't renew the insurance. And he said, what is going on? 
And one by one, all of his properties started to be destroyed. All of them started to be sold off, losing money, completely foreclosed, until all he owned was the minimum that the South African government made sure you had, which was two oxen, two mules, and a little barrel to go with it. And so he just saw everything crumble. As he saw it rise, he saw it crumble even quicker. And he couldn't believe what was happening, so he, 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 he felt like this was, there was something spiritual going on. And so he went, and he took all the letters of Ellen White, and he put them in order chronologically, and he started going through all of the letters, brothers and sisters. And you know what he found out? In every single letter, she was counseling what to do, what not to do. Don't give this doctor extra money. Watch out for this person. Telling him, giving him guidance so that he can navigate and still hold on to that mind. So he read through these letters, and he just cried and cried and cried and cried like a baby for six months. But you know what God did, brothers and sisters? He gave him a second chance. Because later on, he said, Lord, give me one more chance, and I will never, ever let you go like that. I will not let go of your counsel and only focus on the small picture. I'll focus on the big picture. And what happened was he found a gold mine. And their family found a gold mine, and he was made wealthy again. And then he helped fund the church. And they were the ones that built Seleucia University in uh, South Africa. So he used that money to, to build it. But God is good, amen? But the thing that I'm trying to, to, to bring out here, brothers and sisters, is that he thought it was just spiritual, but it was actually his financial welfare tied up with it. And so for you, brothers and sisters, as young people, recognize that the choices you make, the little decisions that we make that we, we think have nothing to do with spirituality or our even uh, present-day success, our financial success, it's all tied together, brothers and sisters. Because you're a whole person, and that's how God sees you. God wants to save you so much, he would take all the money from you if he knew he can save your body. And so our decisions are tied together for our eternal, present, financial, social, all the success that we want to have. It's all tied together, brothers and sisters. And this is what Peter Wessels realized and what he experienced. So now the question is asked, the big picture of long-suffering. How do you deal with being in the middle of temptation and then focusing on the big picture, right? How do you deal when the, the, the temptation is right in front of you and focus on, the, on, on the, the, the bigger picture of what God wants you to do in that situation? There was somebody in the Bible that, that had that, uh, that problem, and he, uh, he didn't do the right thing. Genesis 25, 27 to 34. What time is it, by the way? 107. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Okay, well, I'm not going to be much longer, but I, I know there was a church one time where we went up to preach, and they said, Pastor, you can preach as long as you want, but the Holy Spirit leaves at 12. <laughs> so it's like, okay, but I think I started at 12, amen? So the Holy Spirit's still here, amen? <laughs> so, so Genesis chapter 25, Genesis 25, and what happens is that in verse 27, speaking of Esau and Jacob, it says, And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Re Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. And Jacob said, sell me this day thy birthright. 
And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die. What shall, and what profit shall this birthright do unto me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him. And he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Brothers and sisters, the birthright in Israel was the most treasured possession a son could have. And in a moment of hunger, he decided to sell out the most treasured possession a person can have for his hunger. Jacob gave up his birthright for his belly, brothers and sisters. And the thing is, is that Jacob wasn't focusing, excuse me, Esau, thank you, wasn't focusing on the big picture. He was just looking at the food in front of him because he was tired from hunting. But if he had fasted for one day, he wouldn't have died. He would not have died, brothers and sisters. And so the question is, how do we learn to look outside of the situation? And there's a, there's a trick to that. There's another experiment that I'd like to show you, which is a really interesting video as well, which I'd like to put up on screen right now. <laughs> another really interesting experiment that... Uh, what we did is we put two capuchin monkeys side by side what we did is we put two capuchin monkeys side by side, and if you give both of them cucumber for the task, the two monkeys side by side, they're perfectly willing to do this 25 times in a row. If you give them grapes, it's a far better food uh, than you create. What we did is we put two capuchin monkeys side by side, and if you give both of them cucumber for the task, the two monkeys side by side, they're perfectly willing to do this 25 times in a row. If you give them grapes, it's a far better food uh, than you create inequity between them. So she gives a rock to us, that's the task, and we give her a piece of cucumber and she eats it. The other one needs to give a rock to us, and that's what she does, and she gets a grape, and she eats it. The other one sees that, she gives a rock to us now, gets again cucumber. She tests a rock now against the wall. She needs to give it to us. And she gets cucumber again. So this is basically the Wall Street protest that you see here. So in the video, they're talking about equality and stuff like that. But what spoke to me, brothers and sisters, is that the monkey had two choices. And when he recognized that there was another thing that was better that was available, the one thing that he was being offered seemed completely insignificant. And when you're in the middle of temptation, brothers and sisters, what we need to do mentally is we need to recognize that salvation is what's better for us, brothers and sisters. God wants you to see and understand that there is something better than what the devil is offering you every single time. Some people sometimes are, are, are it's almost like some, some ladies might be dating a, a, a cucumber brother, right? An unbelieving cucumber brother. And that cucumber brother, you don't need to, to, to give in to him because there's a sweet great brother who's waiting on the side in the church. Amen? That's what God wants you to recognize. There's always a better option when it is having to do with temptation. So when you're in this situation, don't think about what you're being offered. Think about the thing that you're not 
think about the thing that is out there for your reach if you push this one aside. And that's, I mean, if monkeys can do it, how much more, brothers and sisters, can we? Amen? The monkey recognized that there was a better option available and just said, throw away that, that, that cucumber, right? And so, and so God wants us to recognize that with temptation, there's always a much better thing that God is offering you. Whenever the devil throws one of his darts, brothers and sisters, it's a risk for him. Because if you give into that, if you don't give into that temptation, you are made stronger because of it. And then you will get the thing that you want usually after that. And this is what the great controversy is all about, brothers and sisters. Abraham wanted a son. He just wanted a son. God knew that. The devil knew that. But there's two ways to get it. Sarah, go sleep with my maid. Or, in faith, wait on God to deliver the real son. Everything that you want, God actually wants to give it to you. But he wants you to get it in the right way, brothers and sisters. So realize that. So, now the question might be asked, how does one strengthen willpower? This is really interesting because what you're looking at on screen is uh, a diagram of the brain and the hypothalamus, the blue one in the center, that's the place where our hunger signal is triggered. It's one of the first places that your body develops, right, when you're in the womb. And hunger is extremely, uh, 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 what they call a very primitive uh, feeling to feel, right? It's one of the first things that you feel as a child. You cry, you, you feel hungry, you cry, your mother brings you milk, right? But this is the thing that's amazing about hunger is that since that feeling is so primal, if you decide to tell that, that primal feeling with your frontal lobe, no, I'm not giving in to you, what happens is your frontal lobe, where you make your decisions, begins to get stronger than your hypothalamus. As you start to deny yourself in that one area of the thing that, that your body's saying, get me food, get me food, and you make your frontal lobe say, no, 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 we're going to get food tomorrow. And fasting, basically, you strengthen your own ability to control yourself. They studied this out, and they found out that mice, when they, give, uh, they make mice skip a meal, their brain cells will grow longer in the one hour that they'll skip a meal. So what happens is, brothers and sisters, is that you can strengthen your brain, which is the, the, the prefrontal cortex, which is the very front of your brain. By denying yourself of this one, you can strengthen this one. And you're basically strengthening your own willpower. Amen? That's a good thing, brothers and sisters, because that's what we need to overcome. Amen? The desire to do what's right. And so this is what God wants us to recognize. And, and, and Ellen White brings this out, and she just says it. She says, the controlling power of appetite will prove the ruin of thousands when if they had conquered on this point, they would have had the moral power to gain the victory over every other temptation of Satan. But those who are slaves of appetite will fail in perfecting Christian character. The continual transgression of man for 6,000 years has brought sickness, pain, and death as its fruits. And as we near the close of time, Satan's temptation to indulge appetite will be more and more powerful and more and more difficult to overcome. Dairy Queen, with those slow motion, you know, when they're showing the ice cream and the fudge is pouring on top of it and then the, the burger is in, like almost into the TV, like you can taste it and touch it. The temptation is very strong today, amen? But brothers and sisters, if you can overcome appetite, you pretty much can overcome everything else. I'm a witness to that. I used to be a chubby, not completely chubby, but I used to eat a lot. 
My grandmother had that thing where she just put the plate down in front of you and she had the spoon. Not to feed you more food, but to make sure you ate what was on the table. So I just ate and ate and ate and ate and ate. But I recognized as I started to maybe take one day where I'm just going to fast. I'm going to fast. I'm going to fast for one day. And as I fasted, brothers and sisters, I recognized that every other issue that was an issue in my life started to be controlled because I could say no to food. The most primal desire, I could say no to almost everything else, brothers and sisters. This is the way God has wired us, and this is one of the reasons why we fast. So I know it's not an easy thing, but I'm just giving you a way out for whatever it is you might be experiencing. So as we close up, the big picture of love. The question is asked, what is the big picture of the gospel? Now we're going back to that thing. Some of you might have seen this thing already, but don't, don't say it. Does anybody know what that is? Anybody under 18? No? How about we back up a little bit? Does anybody know what that is? No? What about now? Can anybody see it? That's a young person. I want a young person, 18. Can you see it? Can you see it? Anybody? Go ahead. Say it. Yes, it does. You don't see it. It's kind of hard to see, but it's a J-E-S-U-S. S-U-S-E. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Sometimes you've got to step back to see the big picture. Amen? Can you see it? Do you see it? Well, the young person saw it, so you can get the CD. Come get the CD. Come get the CD. Who was the young person that saw it? Yeah, you can get the CD. Amen? There you go. That's a city of original music, but the point that I'm trying to bring out, brothers and sisters, here is that sometimes the only, only seeing the big picture will allow you to see, to, excuse me, understand what you're looking at. And sometimes we look at little pieces of the gospel, and God wants us to see the big picture of the gospel. I'm about to close. What is the big picture of Jesus? You guys know these five books? Patriarchs and Prophets, Prophets and Kings, Desire of Ages, Great Controversy, and Acts of the Apostles before that, right? This is the first one. This is the last one. Does anybody know what the first three words of this one is? The first three words of this one, which is the first book, is God is love. The last three words of this book, does anybody know what it is? It is God is love, brothers and sisters. So the big picture of the great controversy is just the fact that God is love, right? But as I was studying this out, I was saying, what does, what does love really mean? What is, what is, what is love? Like, what, what, how can we make that apl applicable? And again, we need to step back to see the big picture to understand what love really is. In Isaiah 45, you have a prophecy. I'm not going to get into all the details of it, basically. But what happens is in Isaiah 45, there's a prophecy where God shows us at the end of time what's going to happen. At the end of the thousand years, the city of God comes down. And all of the wicked that are outside of the city, they rush to go and destroy 
everybody that's in the city. They go rush to attack God, right? And Isaiah describes it there in Isaiah 45, verse 9. He says, woe unto him that striveth with his maker. It's giving you a picture of all these people, Satan and all this angelic host. They're getting up to go and fight God, right? But what's really interesting is as you read further down, look at what they end up saying. Verse, four, verse 24 says, Surely shall one say in the Lord, Have I righteousness and strength? And to him shall men come, and all that are incensed against him shall be ashamed. And verse 23, excuse me. I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear. So I need you to think about this, brothers and sisters. These people are getting up to go and fight against God. They're getting weapons and swords and everything ready to go and fight against God. And then all of a sudden, they're bowing down before him and saying, just and true are thy ways. What happens in between? What makes them go, for going, from going to go and attack God to kneeling down before him in mercy, in, in humility? What happens, brothers and sisters, is that for the first time in their lives, the wicked see the big picture about God. And that big picture is described by Ellen White. She says that above the throne of God, Jesus, he pronounces the sentence upon the wicked, and then above him is a rainbow, and above that rainbow is a gigantic panoramic picture. And in that picture is played the final scenes of Jesus' life. Everything that Jesus goes through in the, in the great controversy in a sacrifice for us. And Jesus forsakes himself, his, 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 his crown, his authority in heaven, comes down to earth, dies as a man, and comes back. And goes up to his father, and goes through all of this pain. And the wicked see this as if entranced. And they recognize that he would do all of this. But also that right now, he's going to have to lay them to rest. And what clicks in their minds, brothers and sisters is that not only did God want to save them, not only did Jesus die for them, but he valued their eternal happiness more than their existence. Oh, brothers and sisters, you didn't get that. Jesus, more than wanting you just to do things to be obedient, he wants you to be happy, brothers and sisters. And this is one of the things that we believe as Christians, that when God asked me to keep the Sabbath, to not be in an adulterous relationship, to not fornicate, to not do all these things, we think we, he's asking it for himself. But the things that he asks us to do is for our own happiness, brothers and sisters. It's so that we can be joyful. So that we can be happy and experience the abundant life. Brothers and sisters, both you and me have been deceived. We've been deceived into thinking that when we become Christians, it means we have to have a sad life. But it's completely the opposite. Especially for young people, recognize that when you devote your life totally to God, there is nothing more that sets you up for complete joy in this life and in the life to come. I want to read one last statement and we're going to pray and close. She says, the service of Christ is not drudgery to the fully consecrated soul. Obedience to our Savior does not detract from happiness and true pleasure in this life, but it has a refining, elevating power upon our characters. The daily study of precious words of life found in the Bible strengthens the intellect and furnishes a knowledge of the grand and glorious works of God in nature. 
through the study of the scriptures, we obtain a correct knowledge of how to live so as to enjoy the greatest amount of an unalloyed happiness. God wants us to be happy, brothers and sisters. And as she says here, they think, speaking of the youth, that its requirements are unrefined and that in accepting it, they must relinquish all their taste for enjoyment of that which is beautiful and instead must accept humiliation and degradation. Satan never fastens a greater deception upon minds than this. When you believe that religion is something that's going to make you sad and lose out on life instead of gain eternity and all that you want in this life, brothers and sisters. And so this morning, I'm going to make a quick appeal. This afternoon, I'm going to make a quick appeal. I'm just asking all those that want to be happy in Christ to stand up. All those that want the joy that the Lord has for them to stand up. And then I'm going to ask for one other thing. Some people in this room need to make choices to make that happen. Some people need to break off certain relationships to make that happen. Some people need to forsake certain things in their lives to make that happen. Some people need to, 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 to connect or forgive people to make that happen, to experience that joy in this life and the life to come to make this happen, brothers and sisters. The reason why I want you to say yes to this is because God wants you to be happy more than he even wants to exist himself. So recognize that him trying to save you it's not about you being sad. Anything we have to give up for Christ, brothers and sisters, it's about your happiness. So if you know that's you, as all heads are bowed and all eyes are closed, I'm asking you just to raise a hand. If you need strength to make a choice, I'm asking all heads to be bowed and all eyes to be closed and a hand to be raised if that is you. If you 